welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Yesterday, the FCC revoked net neutrality by a 3-2 to two vote, as expected. Joining me now is FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, who was nominated to the commission by President Trump. He voted to repeal net neutrality. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, the FCC is going to be defending against many lawsuits. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman announced he'll lead a multi-state lawsuit against the FCC, Washington AG. Bob Ferguson will also sue. Schneiderman's investigation and a Pew Research study showed that millions of public comments submitted were fake. And 19 state AGs and others requested a delay in the vote to investigate it. Why didn't the commission grant that delay? What was the rush to push this through? Yeah, I think a lot of what you're hearing is uh, misinformation about what the FCC ended up doing. Again, a lot of people are claiming that we, quote, ended net neutrality or ended the Internet as we know it. Simply not the case. We went back to the 2015 regulatory framework that governed the Internet that year and for 20 years before consumers were protected. The Internet flourished under that framework. We simply went back to that same regulatory framework. Yes, but the the whole point is there was a comment period which is required because you revoked a rule and the the AG's lawsuit is going to be based on a failure to follow the Administrative Procedure Act and so my question is what was the rush in doing that vote why not wait and investigate Oh, we followed the Administrative Procedure Act, absolutely. In April is when we opened up this rulemaking proceeding. We saw over 22, 24 million filings get submitted in the FCC's record. We released the document more than three weeks before the FCC's vote. So there's a tremendous amount of transparency here, and anybody and everyone that wanted to participate uh, were free to submit filings. And we reviewed the record and based our decision on the public's feedback. The, there was enormous public feedback against this, though. Yeah, and there's a threshold legal question that we have to answer at the FCC, which is a technical one, which is, is this a Title II telecom service or is it a Title I information service? And that's a legal determination that we have to make. And we looked at the record, looked at the law and our precedent, and we made that determination. As you point out, there's a separate policy debate as well. And again, I think a lot of what you're seeing is sort of this perception that by repealing Title II, that we are giving ISPs free reign to dominate consumers' online experience. That's not what I want to see, and that's not what our vote did. We kept strong consumer protections in place. So I think a lot of what you're seeing is fear that ISPs are going to have no legal restraints on what they do, or that we're going to somehow move into some balkanized version of the Internet. Again, that's not the case. We are putting strong protections in place to make sure that we continue to have a free and open Internet. Well, broadband providers say they'll not block or throttle legal contact content, but they may engage in paid prioritization or prioritize their own content or content from their partners. For example, AT&T already has its direct now video streaming service to bypass mobile subscribers' data limits. So that may happen. No, not at all. So right now under Title II, all of that activity that you described, blocking websites, uh, paid prioritization, throttling, is lawful under the Title II framework. The D.C. Circuit made that clear when they reviewed the FCC's rule. Now that we're repealing Title II, the Federal Trade Commission is empowered again 
They lost their authority over ISPs during this two-year experiment with Title II, and there are strong legal checks in place, Section 1 of the Sherman Act, Section 2 of the Sherman Act. So if an ISP entered into an anti-competitive agreement to do those things that you just talked about, those would be a violation of federal antitrust law. Again, it's a shift from the FCC being the lead enforcer here to the FTC. It's not a shift from having laws and restraints against ISPs toward which there are no restraints. But the FTC takes care of problems after the fact. The enforcement happens after the fact, and its authority is under question at the Ninth Circuit. So that's the first part of that, that's the same framework we have at the FCC. We had net neutrality rules, and then people file complaints. In fact, some allege we had 50,000 complaints. And then the FCC takes enforcement action. Our rules are not self-enforcing. That's the same world we're going into with the Federal Trade Commission. They have standards, whether it's Section 1 or Section 2. And then the question becomes enforcing those standards. So there's no shift in that respect. And as the FTC's jurisdiction, there was a panel decision at the Ninth Circuit about a year ago that called their question into, uh, called their authority into question. That panel decision has now effectively been vacated by the full Ninth Circuit. So the law of the land today is the Federal Trade Commission is fully empowered to take enforcement actions against ISP. The only thing that was holding them back before was the FCC's Title II decision. Well, there is going to be an on-bank hearing about that, so the Ninth Circuit is still going to rule. But let's move on. The FCC order blocks states from making their own net neutrality rules. And one California state senator said he's going to introduce a bill to impose net neutrality rules there. The attorneys general can sue, saying the FCC doesn't have authority to preempt state consumer protection rules, and also the commission did not ask for questions on that issue. Do you see problems there? You have about 45 seconds. No, not at all. So there's actually two types of state laws. What are generally applicable consumer protection laws that consumers benefit from? Those are expressly not preempted by the FCC's decision. To the extent that there are state laws that would look to mimic federal net neutrality laws, simply by operation of law, uh, our decision preempts those, uh, those laws. But again, there will be state uh, consumer protection laws that will continue to apply after this decision. All right. Well, you are in for a lot of lawsuits, and uh, we will keep following them. Thanks so much for being here on the show. That's FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr. Walt Disney's deal to buy a chunk of 21st Century Fox for roughly $52.4 billion is a tie-up that concentrates Hollywood movie-making and sports broadcasting. The acquisition would make Disney the number one studio owner with more than a third of the market and give it control over Fox's FX cable channel. It would also put Fox's regional sports networks under the same roof as Disney's ESPN. It will need approval from U.S. antitrust officials who have a March 19th court date to stop AT&T's planned takeover of Time Warner. In an interview on Bloomberg TV, Disney Chief Executive and Chairman Bob Iger said the deal is very pro-consumer. What this combination will do, as I said a moment ago, is going to give uh, the consumer opportunities not only to consume far greater amounts of high-quality content, but to do so under extremely innovative modern, modern circumstances. And we think, at least from a regulatory perspective, if they focus just on the consumer, that that's actually quite a positive thing.
Joining me is Bloomberg Senior Litigation Analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst, Jennifer Ree. Jen, we've been talking about horizontal versus vertical mergers a lot. Does this deal look more like the deals that the Justice Department typically tries to stop as compared to the AT&T Time Warner deal? Well, it looks more like the kind of deals that, that are more easily, uh, that can more easily affect competition in a bad way. You know, because a horizontal deal is just a combination of two competitors. So automatically on its face, it's concentrating a market, right? It's taking out a competitor and more competitors are better, period. So the question then becomes how much is it concentrating the market and is it concentrating the market so much so that it could be harmful? So so it, it's a much more straightforward theory of harm than when you're looking at a vertical deal and the way that might harm a market. So what might be the sticking points here? Well, you know, first of all, I think... Again, it's a horizontal deal. So we have two companies that have movie studios that make movies and distribute movies. So you have an overlap right there. And and typically, the way those overlaps are looked at, I think some people have said, wow, that's so much content, you know, block, big blockbusters and, and award-winning movies that may be coming out of Fox. But typically, the way the regulators will look at that is say, what is market share? And they put those shares together, and they do kind of a preliminary measure of market concentration by taking a sum of the squares of those market shares and looking at what those numbers are. This is called the herfindahl hirschman Index. And it's something that I knew gives, that. You knew that. It's, we'll call it the HHI here going forward because it's much easier. But this is something that's been used for many, many years. It's within their guidelines. It's helpful to them because it just gives them a first glance, a first initial measure of whether it's concentrated. And you know, when you look at the most recent share figures for Fox and Disney and putting them together, those numbers don't look that bad. Really? Yeah, I know it's surprising. Well, that is surprising because when you hear about what's involved, it sounds like it would would uh, cause some problems. Well, does the DOJ, as I said, mm -hmm. is trying to block the AT&T Time Warner merger. Does their position in that suit tell us anything about what they might do here? Well, they're very different. And of course, each, each merger is meant to be taken for its own facts and the circumstances that apply to those two merging companies. But I think if the AT&T suit tells us anything, what it tells us is that where there's a vertical issue and a possibility that it could be harmful, the behavioral conditions may not are, are unlikely to be accepted because that's really what's happened there in AT&T Time Warner. They always expected to have to have a remedy, but they thought it would behavioral be behavioral mm -hmm. rather than selling assets. So in this Disney Fox deal, there is a slight vertical aspect to it too, as well as the horizontal, where they may be licensing their content, let's say to some of these, what we call the over-the-top providers like the Netflix of the world or you know the competitors, the other competitors that may be still up and coming. And, and to that extent, what we do know from AT&T is if there's a problem with that, they may have to be ready also to offer a structural remedy rather than a behavioral remedy. The antitrust breakup fee here is $2.5 billion. Does that mean that both parties view the antitrust risk as high? You know, it's funny because on, I've seen people interviewed and at one breath, somebody will say, well, wow, this is so high. This They must think, must think this has massive risk. And somebody else saying, well, obviously, Disney thinks this has low risk because <laughs> they're, you know, they're willing to pay 2.5. And that's exactly what a high breakup fee tells you. Uh -huh. It tells you nothing because it tells you that Fox is going to protect itself just in case, which of course makes sense in such an uncertain environment. But it also tells you that Disney's lawyers have said you should be confident that you're going to be able to get this through because you're putting this $2.5 billion out there and you're risking that. 
What got a lot of attention yesterday <laughs> was President Trump saying that the Disney Fox deal would be good for jobs. Now, <laughs> how does that factor into the antitrust analysis, and does it put pressure on the regulators. Well, I'll tell you, it's all very convoluted because really horizontal deals don't end up usually in creating jobs. Now, whether way down the road this could be job creating, I don't know. But part of where you get those synergies, and they're talking about $2 billion worth of cost synergies, is because you have employment redundancies and people get laid off. So they are, they are job killers more than they are job creators. And in the antitrust front, Oddly, that goes in the pro column. That's on the good column in an antitrust analysis because those pro-competitive efficiencies, that gaining efficiencies internally by combining, are, are what is weighed against the possible harm, right? So sometimes those costs, the $2 billion in cost efficiencies that are expected, which include layoffs, are looked at as a good thing usually by the regulators. So this is all very twisted. <laughs> In in five seconds, how long before we know whether the DOJ is going to post this? Oh, it's going to be a long time. I think we're looking at a year at least. Really? Oh, yes. I think they'll scrutinize this for a long time. All right. Well, thanks, as always, for being here, Jen. Thank That's you. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. And for more of her analysis, you can go to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.